Hello, Warriors of Light, and welcome to Let's Mosey. What's going on? So this week, I guess let's start off with the newsreel. Yeah, the newsreel. So the big news I think we wanted to discuss today was the um, Final Fantasy IX and Final Fantasy VII and VIII are getting physical releases for the Switch. That's correct. The Nintendo Switch is getting physical copies of a, 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 a excuse me, a double copy of seven and eight in one game and nine in a single release on its own. What do you think about the twin pack of the seven and eight? Well, you know, I'm not the hugest fan of Final Fantasy VIII, so I kind of feel like it's potentially a way for Square to make money off the game when there might not be as much of a audience for it as there used to be when it came out. You know, I kind of, I get what you're saying there. I do think it's probably the, the odd child in the bunch of the PlayStation yeah. series ones. I, I do think there's a very, like, a rabid fan base for it, but it's like a niche fan base. Right. It, it's kind of like a, almost like a cult <clears throat> classic of, if you can call a Final Fantasy, a cult classic game. Well, I mean, the story isn't bad by any means, it's just the uh, the gameplay is a little divisive. That's, yeah. I think, where a lot of people stand and where a line has been drawn on that game. So, I guess to summarize that, I think it's a pretty big deal that they're finally issuing physical copies for these games because a lot of older and or indie games on switch it's a big deal when they do get physical releases and they become pretty big collector items and i'm kind of excited to at least pick up the final fantasy 9 one because that's one of my favorites out of the three on playstation and obviously final fantasy 7 too yeah that's a good good uh, pickup there i actually don't have any of them on the switch i have the eight HD remake of eight, well, remake is a strong remaster of eight is probably right. better words there. And then I have the Game Pass version of seven right now on on my Xbox. But I'm you know I'm kind of excited that they're getting a physical re-release. And you know I think the twin pack. I I would like a Final Fantasy uh, collection like a triple collection. I think a PlayStation all-stars so to speak if you will sure would be a really neat way to pay homage to these i think a lot of people um at least when i saw the news broke on reddit um that's where i think we got this information yeah um i saw a lot of comments where people were you know complaining to be quite honest that they weren't issued in one yeah back well you can complain all you want but sure I guarantee people are gonna buy it i mean i've bought these games individually multiple multiple yeah. multiple times so i'm not surprised and the fact that we're getting at least one twin pack is actually a pretty cool thing i actually bought i already have all three of them on switch on digital versions so i definitely you know it, it might be more um money down the drain so to speak but i'll probably end up buying like i mentioned at least final fantasy 9 do you think any of the other one or any of the other systems will get a physical copy? You mean you're talking about like Xbox and yeah, Xbox, PlayStation? Probably not. I think there's just something about the Switch and having like the cartridge. I think that's kind of what is the appeal there. I just don't know that they'll want to create a, a disc version, reissue a disc for all these games. I could be wrong, but um, it's actually usually more expensive to do the the cartridge than it is. Right. Well, actually, now that I'm looking at it, it looks like Final Fantasy VIII is getting a PlayStation 4 release. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, Final Fantasy VIII Remastered on PS4 is getting a physical release. Interesting. I, uh, December 4th is when that, that can be had. I'm more curious if this will also lend itself to the physical release of a 10-2 remaster as well. On Switch? Yeah. 
was gonna say there's a there is a physical release for PlayStation 4. Right. But I think as far as I know, there isn't a physical release of 10 and 10 2 for Switch. I, I think you're right. Um, I have is... those two as well, digital on Switch. I have pretty much, yeah, I've got like uh, 7 through 10 2. <laughs> well, you gotta, right? That's, I mean, the Switch just brings a really cool uh, ability to kind of play those, the higher res, the newer version, newer games, I right. guess, on a mobile platform that you couldn't do it before. I'm, I'm honestly surprised they haven't, like, reissued a digital version of the Dawn of Souls on Switch. I think, I don't know why they wouldn't. Yeah, that would be a really easy, uh, easy game changer, or, you know, easy solution for, solution's not really the word, easy money maker for square enix yeah i mean i would i would definitely buy it myself because um, i no longer i have a game boy advance that i could play them on but i actually don't have the cartridge anymore so if i'm gonna buy that again i might as well just buy it on switch and have that for the foreseeable future so i you know i love that we're coming back to seven and eight i think that's really cool that we we're going that far back to the beginning of the playstation era i mean we've got the timeless classic of seven which is arguably one of the best received games of the Final Fantasy series. And then we've got, you know, again, it's a little more divisive eight, but it's it's got its fans. It's got a strong fan base. And there are some great things about eight. I actually really like that game, even though it's not my favorite of the series. Yeah. Um, but the fact that we're getting nine too, I you know, I think that's really awesome. I think nine, you know, obviously it's the it's sort of the quote unquote song or swan song to a lot of the classic Final Fantasy motifs until obviously we get Final Fantasy sixteen, it sounds like we're getting a little bit more of that style. But I really think that yeah, I, I, Nine is one of my favorite, like I mentioned. I, the story is really good. I think it really has stood the test of time as well. I think there's a lot of elements about the game, you know, mini games, aspects and for like speed running to get specific equipment. I, there's a specific element of that with like the strongest sword in the game. Yeah, that was a little frustrating. Excalibur 2. I think you have to complete it in less than 12 hours? I think you have to get to the last disc in, 12, in under 12 hours. Which yeah. is, you know, just frenetic. It's scary. you know it's much more possible now that they've added a lot of the life change. Right. Yeah. You can you life, can speed up you know um, dialogue and stuff yeah. like that. But you know I question. I can't remember. Is it isn't that affecting the internal game clock as well? Like when you speed up. No. Uh, no, it doesn't. It's, it's the game. That's the cool thing about it. Is it it's a three times speed, but the internal game clock stays with normal time. Okay. And that's why you're able to much at a much higher rate successfully complete the game in 12 hours so that's a pretty big win uh you know that brings me to a good point is you know why nine why why does nine get the separate release well i think it's like i mentioned it's kind of that classic final fantasy motif um it's sort of its own animal at seven and eight have more of a uh you know modern aesthetic going on within the game i mean you talk about a, a combat school within eight where you know people are just kind of sent out in battalions to mm-hmm. go wreak havoc on monsters and seven is more of a dystopian futuristic world whereas nine is you know bringing back that motif of the crystals the kind of the medieval yeah feel yeah so i i kind of understand why you know it might have its own standalone version coming out on a hard copy so i guess what i'm hearing is seven and eight just kind of go together the yeah. motifs are similar enough, yeah. and then nine kind of ha- is its own 
it, it's it's that callback to the older yeah. generation of Final Fantasy games. I mean, I, I kind of we were talking about this off uh, mic a little bit ago, but you know they have the the auction house in nine where you go and pick up classic key items from mm-hmm. Final Fantasy. Um, the rat past. tail. Rat tail. Um, there's a few other items. I can't remember what they're called off the top of my head, but they affect like some music that's played in the Black Mage Village as well, mm-hmm. which is a pretty interesting Easter egg. Yeah, it's and even kind of coming back to the whole Black Mage thing, we have the traditional styled Black Mages right. that we're going to actually see when we talk more about Final Fantasy 1 here in the mm-hmm. near future. I miss Vivi. Poor Vivi. <laughs> Poor Vivi. Oh, everybody loves Vivi, right? He gets a He gets a happy ending. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of brings me to a good question. Do you think these games are a good place for people new to the series to jump in with these new physical releases? Yeah, I think so. Especially if you're, like you mentioned, new to the series. Um, it's a great way to, like for a parent, to maybe push the game on their kid if they want to. Like, you know, I, I played this <laughs> when I was growing up on PlayStation 1. What better way than, you know, to have me sit here with you while you go through it. And if you have any questions or if you're really excited about playing it, we can share this journey together. I think that's part of the appeal of the Nintendo Switch is that it's more of a kind of interactive family console. Mm-hmm. So it's more about the the group aspect in interaction with the gameplay. Yeah. And speaking of family style, you know, and with young kids, honestly, nine is not a bad place to start with the younger kids. I feel like the art style is a little more appealing for right. the younger younger kids, and the the story isn't quite as um, heavy as say seven and eight. Seven and eight are pretty dark motifs. Nine um, actually, toward the end, the, the story gets a little dark. Um, yeah. It talks about, you know, a lot of existential crises between several characters. Yeah. Um, and specifically um, their impact on the potential end of the world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But that, yeah, that's, we're further down the road with that comment. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think kind of what we're thinking, what, what we're getting out of this is that 7, 8, 9 are great places to start for the series. 9, uh, a little more youth youth friendly a little more light and airy but does have that dark motifs toward especially towards the end as you get further in seven and eight are a much more mature feel and that kind of goes with you know the dark futuristic kind of stories right. that they, they give and, and even almost dystopian uh, not quite dystopian but pretty I think, close i mean i think seven is definitely well and eight definitely too you yeah. know you're right dystopian is probably a good word for it because i mean in eight we have I mean, a whole compression and, you look at specifically yeah. what you know uh you look at what shinra did to like several so, villages hold on, then, let's not go any deeper sure we, we should probably preface this with some spoilers uh, well but, i'm not gonna say what happened <laughs> but i'm just you know between me and alex you see what shinra did to several locations within yeah. the game and i don't know you how mean you... shinra's not the good guys well, uh, there is a character named Shinra in a later game that is a pretty decent guy, but <laughs> I thought that was kind of odd when I saw the name pop up the first time I played that game, but we'll, we'll save that when we get there. Speaking of which, you know, there's some good, uh, between 7 and 8, that's another connection, is there's there's some good Easter eggs from characters that follow through to multiple games and that you get to see pretty early in both right. of those games. I'm, I'm actually, you know, talking about this, I'm actually excited to see what potential Easter eggs they incorporate in Final Fantasy 16, given that it's going to be taking place with a likely similar setting as a lot of these games we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and that one kind of comes back to that 
that darker motif, mm -hmm. but also with the um, the medieval aspects that are common in the older Final Fantasies and that we're going to get to see a lot of when we talk about Final Fantasy 1 that I'm really excited about. So I think I think it's suffice it to say that it's pretty exciting that we're going to get a early or a physical release for these three games on the Switch. And not only that, uh, we'll, we're going to get them here pretty soon, up in December. So that's, yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's another point, too. I mean, it's a great um, potential Christmas gift for any Final Fantasy lover in your life. So if you're looking for holiday gifts for someone, you know, uh, uh, Final Fantasy is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, yeah, 40 hours. I mean, these three <laughs> games will keep you busy for, you know, 100 and, 130 hours. Plus replay value. hours. Absolutely. So... Keep that in mind, moms and dads. Or uh, siblings, or uh, Alex. Significant others. <laughs> if you're looking for a gift for me, Alex. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> so, um, do we have any other news items we want to discuss? Or I think that was the big news from this week. Maybe it's time we go ahead and shift to what we're going to be talking about today. Do you want to tell the folks what the goal is today? Yeah, so we're going to pick off largely or pick up largely where we left off last week we finished with the discussion of the idea of final fantasy and how it was birthed within the company of square how square started and how um the journey to the concept of final fantasy began this week we are going to focus more on the team of the people that created final fantasy as well as um, the discussion of the game and the reception as well as when it came out. So we'll get to really talk about the birth of Final Fantasy as a series. And uh, we may even get a little bit uh, discussion at the beginning of how we might start our playthrough of Final Fantasy 1. So Josh, why don't you tell us about the birth of Final Fantasy? With pleasure. Episode 2, The Final Fantasy. With the go-ahead to pursue his dream, Sakaguchi had planned to build an elite programming team to accomplish his goal. It should be noted that by this time, Square had made a critical choice to lay off half of its employees in an effort to save money. Combine this with the fact that many of Sakaguchi's programmers considered him to be a terrible boss to work for, there were only three people that stepped forward to join his team. Ultimately, he was able to form a team of seven core staffers, Kinji Tarada, scenario writer, Koichi Ishii and Akitoshi Kawazau, game designers, Nobuo Uematsu, music composer, Yoshitaki Amano, character designer, Nasir Gabelli, coder, and Sakaguchi himself, design and production. The team was met with a lot of doubt and pushback from the other staff, and it is even mentioned in an interview with Famitsu, translated by Ed Fear, that the atmosphere left Sakaguchi doubting the potential of the game, thinking that the game wouldn't sell thanks to the shortage of staff and other factors. The series name, Final Fantasy, is often attributed to Square's dependence on the product as its last throw of the dice. But the truth, says Sakaguchi, was that it was his personal last effort. Gabelli was sort of an icon for Sakaguchi, and upon this first meeting he had asked for his autograph. Eventually, though, Gabelli's desire to know all the aspects of the game grew very tiresome to Sakaguchi, and he requested that he simply focus on coding what he was asked to in an effort to allow more time and effort to overseeing the whole project. Gabelli claimed his coding fame while working with Apple on the Apple II, 
but had a difficult time communicating with Sakaguchi in the beginning due to language barriers. Gabelli even chose to code the very first minigame ever into an RPG, a sliding puzzle. Don't worry, we'll get there eventually. So it seemed like that was like a really big, big uh, last chance almost. Like Sakaguchi didn't really think they were going to get another shot after this. You know, he had his team of rock stars, so to speak, but they a lot of them were really not proven, although we'll come to see that some of these were some of the heavy hitters in the series. I mean, we got folks like Amano and Uematsu who are just legendary for their artistic endeavors and abilities. It's it's pretty amazing, right, right Josh? Right, well, even at the time, you know, you mentioned, like, icons. Really, you know, Sakaguchi mentions Gabelli being an icon to him. That's really the only true staple name on this team and even then I, I don't believe that it was a guarantee that he was even going to be on the team i think miyamoto kind of just asked him if he would like you know come and work on this project with us like we're really desperate to get a game out that will succeed and um i think eventually when he did come on you know as i mentioned sakaguchi really just kind of the starstruck when he met him and being a true professional that Gabelli was, he really had a desire to know what exactly the entire vision was for the game. Oh, absolutely. And given the fact that if Square hadn't created a game of this magnitude before... Or the style, really, even. Right, yeah, but Sakaguchi just really didn't have the wherewithal to really explain everything to him. He goes, I, I just have this project, just work on what I need you to do. We're trying to get this done, because it's our last chance he strikes me as a driven man sakaguchi right i mean they say he wasn't a he was hard to work with yeah and that is kind of the case with these folks that have a dream and a vision and a really specific vision that they really want it to turn out a certain way and and so it you know when you have such a hard vision it can be hard to let others have control or let others fit into that vision in the same way right well especially when you know essentially the entire success of the company is riding on this idea and it's your idea and you have to make sure that it's done within the allotted time, within the allotted budget, and you have a specific vision to follow. People mm -hmm. keep coming to you with questions, maybe potentially um, critiques, like, no, that's not what we're doing. We have to do it this way because this is what we have the resources available to do. And you mentioned Gabelli as an icon. I, you know, Apple... And the Apple II, that I mean, that's the old days of the Apple, but Apple II was when, when the Apple became a, a staple. That's right. when it really started to push in, into the computer industry and and show that they could com start to compete with places like IBM. And I'm sure, you know, as Sakaguchi and a lot of his um, friends within Square were big fans of the Wizardry game on the Apple computers, they were probably very aware of the efforts that Gabelli had put into the system to accommodate that type of software. Impressive, none the least. Right. Kinsey Tarada was responsible with storyboarding Sakaguchi's vision, a journey of four young warriors, each in the possession of an orb of light, that were in need of illumination. Each orb of a differing element, earth, fire, water, wind, had been darkened under mysterious circumstances, and the four light warriors set out on a quest to rectify the situation. While there are more elements to the story, these will be expanded upon during our review later. Ishii and Kawazu would be two individuals responsible for incorporating elements that would become strong pillars to the franchise and recurring themes. 
Specifically, Ishii was the force behind the crystal motif that has permeated the Final Fantasy franchise, while Kawazu developed the in-game combat system. The combat system focuses on traditional tabletop RPG elements and motifs. Kawazu's fashioned it after D&D. In an interview with Jeremy Parrish of 1UP.com, Kawazu explained, I didn't need to oversimplify things, but there are certain elements when it comes to Dungeons & Dragons type of environment, a Western role-playing experience. Like, zombies are weak against fire, or monsters made of fire are weak against ice. If you think about it a little, they all make sense. And these are the things that D&D already sets up. Certain things are weak against certain other things, and strong against yet other things. They all, all have these relationships. Up until that point, Japanese RPGs were ignoring all of that. They didn't incorporate those elements. It just wasn't a part of what they were doing. That's what I found kind of irritating. So it's pretty amazing uh, some of the things that they were already doing, like the programming in specifically weaknesses and strengths. Right. So, you know, as we mentioned last episode, um, when Dragon Quest was created by Enix, that was a feature of RPGs that they neglected to honor. It's also weird to me because I grew up after Final Fantasy. So I think of Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest being like the original RPGs. And really, they took all their lessons, a lot of their lessons from Western RPGs like right. D&D. Yeah, and that's pretty pretty crazy. I mean, because you, you talk about how popular J A uh, JRPGs are today. A lot of people um, find Final Fantasy synonymous with that statement. And Final Fantasy kind of just took a lot of their development from Western RPGs, like you mentioned, Dungeons and Dragon. Dragons. So Ishii kind of really came up with that, the motif of the crystals. And that's, you know, we see that all the way through, I mean, 16, the, yeah. the previews, uh, the trailer for 16 has the crystal motif it's, in it. It's crazy how, yeah, it's just, it's it's never gone away from Final Fantasy. I mean, even handheld games like Tactics, that's a big part of the game. The, uh, the Totemas, mm -hmm. they are in crystals. You have to go find them throughout the game. They're very big parts of the story and even on the other Ivalice games as well. It's been throughout most of the game. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Or if not, you know, the orbs, the, technically it was the orbs um, in the mm -hmm. original NES Final Fantasy. And you even still see that in the, the newer versions. They have the crystal in your your menu screen. But when you go to, say, the Cavern of Earth in Final Fantasy, there's a giant brown orb sitting in the room. It depends on what version you play, because some of the more newer ones, like I think the iOS version actually has a crystal in it. I think, out. well, the on the, the Play Store, the Google Play Store version, there is a orb, which is, is interesting. But, you know, on the menu, it shows a crystal. Yeah. It's a very visible crystal. So a Probably maybe, a, a limitation of the hardware at the time. Right, and maybe, you know, maybe it's just a, a, a touch-up, you know, a translation thing yeah. that they wanted to clarify. And, um... I know that there are some aspects with Final Fantasy that, you know, as with The Legend of Zelda, they had incorporated elements of religious um, items, mm -hmm. and they may have thought that that was something that needed to be removed from the game for a North American audience. Yeah, we always got the dumbed-down version of things back in the day. For sure. Uh, Kawazu, uh, his... his uh combat system was just revolutionary, and the fact that we, we use 
aspects of that con- combat system even still today, you know, the weaknesses and strengths, but even the turn-based right. system that he had set up, that was common and, of course, modified throughout the years, but up through, what was the last turn-based Final Fantasy? Maybe a uh, traditional turn-based, so maybe 10? Um, yeah, I would say probably 10 too. Thir- 13 isn't really traditional turn-based. Yeah, it's more action turn-based. Yeah. And 10, 12 10 is two, kind of action 10-2 is definitely traditional Final Fantasy and the fact that it's got the, the job system and the um, <clears throat> active time battle gauge as well, which wasn't present in the first Final Fantasy games, but it became present within, I think, as soon as... Three? Four was the four? first okay. first one for an active time battle, um, ATB. But that age. became a stalwart within the combat system in and of its own, and I really wish they would incorporate that in some of the newer games. So they kind of, you know, uh, Koazu really created something that worked well for the series and just continued to be modified and improved upon for decades. Right, yeah. It's it, pretty it's, impressive. I agree. Um, it's definitely one of the elements that of the original team in place that, you know, really set the, the the plan going forward for the series. You look at, as you mentioned, the elemental weaknesses that he touched upon in his interview. That's really huge because it gives you a, at the time they had the TTRPG where it was just, you know, either, you know, drawing on paper, you had the, the DM behind the, the, uh, the trifold, um, piece of cardboard the dungeon master but this actually gives you a visual expression of what that would look like and incorporates it into a action-based battle that you have on a vision or a screen in front of you which was probably mind-blowing at the time and unfortunately we weren't around to play it when it first came out but mm-hmm. i know that i enjoyed final fantasy when it came out or when i first played it and it really was something groundbreaking to me that type of combat i just i just can't imagine what it was like for the people that originally played it when it came out. Uematsu had already made a name for himself as a game composer, with 16 previous titles already crediting his name. We won't go into the music of the game too much for the purpose of Final Fantasy's production, but we will likely dedicate an entire episode to discussing Uematsu and the musical direction taken within the game. Amano, while tasked with the original illustration character design aspects, was originally shrugged off by Sakaguchi because he had no idea who he was. Sakaguchi had explained to Ishii that he wanted an art similar to the style he found in a few magazine clippings he had, to which Ishii informed him that they were created by Amano. The team finished Final Fantasy in 1987, and the game was released December 18, 1987 for the Famicom and NES in Japan. So... I know we're, we'll do more talking about Uematsu and his com- compositions, but he is a legend. Yeah. Well, and, and not, not just interject here. You know, when I when we when I made this uh, breakdown of the the information that we're telling you guys right now, what I envision the discussion of his music will basically be an entire episode where we go through the soundtrack of Final Fantasy. Oh yeah. So that I think that deserves its own. That I, I absolutely agree. He, it's it's just so I you know I read that um, this is jumping a little ahead, but the music, the love song in Final Fantasy IV, is so revolutionary that it is actually taught in. You're Japanese talking about the schools. one where you it's in the interactive one, right? 
don't know what you're talking about. Never mind. I'm thinking of Final Fantasy VI. No, Final Fantasy IV. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? The yeah. balcony. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. I know what you're talking about now. Sorry, I'm like, I'm, 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 you had me game. there for an interactive one. I'm like, did I miss something? On a I completely different Final game, right there. Um, no, no, the the song though, the love song. I forgot what it's actually called, but it it's uh, is taught in Japanese schools, uh, music schools, floating around here. which is is pretty pretty amazing for a someone who composes video game music to be held in that such a higher echelon we, we don't think about that well the 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 level of detail that he was able to program into you know chip music on like a video game yeah music? yeah oh like it was amazing it, it it and it really talks about you know nowadays you listen to say well not you listen to but you uh a lot of games are credited with their soundtracks as adding just so much more depth to the game I feel like this is one of those specific instances where that was birthed. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Like just just the I, I think Uematsu kind of brought chip music to a whole new level. Um, I mean, the music that he could come up with with a, a NES uh, scale, a Famicom scale, is just super. Well, you impressive. know, we're we're spoiled today with <laughs> the, the level of you know chip tuning that you can create in the outside video game world. I mean, we. We've, oh, full we've orchestras now, right? Right. I mean, and we've we've dabbled with it ourselves in you know ideas for the show. Um, so and really, some of them are pretty fun to do. It's it's interesting to um, sit there and make video game music and, and styles that, that you have remembered from games in your childhood. And that's with the benefit of modern technology, the the composing softwares that we right. have now, and they did not have. Back I imagine. Then. I imagine there was a lot more like. Uh, technical understanding of programming that went into yeah, chip tune sure. video games at the time but i i mean i i love the music uematsu came up with so much i it's one of my goals one day is to go to a final fantasy distant world production you yeah know, with the orchestrated music i just think that would be so great that i mean that too um i you know i do that they do that for kingdom hearts as well i'd love to do mm-hmm. one for kingdom oh, hearts yeah. yeah they do i think they do a zelda one too and that would be cool that would be cool i just you know i would love to go hear uh Simple and clean, orchestrated, you know? Right? Oh, oh, my gosh. Sign me up, right? Um, and, and I'll just throw this extra piece in there uh, about Uematsu is the music is so great to listen to, so well orchestrated. Uh, even when it's redone on a piano or something, it's great. I spent countless hours studying for school or, or comps or writing um, papers and stuff, listening to his compositions, yeah. and I think it's been really helpful. Let's shift to what about Amano? What do you think about his artwork and and the fact that you know he he basically sold them using clippings from a magazine that Sakaguchi liked? Yeah, well, you know, it was very interesting in that. So when we're talking about the art, we're talking about like the the concept. concept art. We're not art, actually right. talking about the video game like character sprite design. We're and, talking, and about- that's a good point to make too, because a lot of people see the concept art for Final Fantasy and they're like. These don't look anything right. like, and 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 um, Amano doesn't have anything to do with the destruct right construction it's, it's of the game solely, itself. It's solely, you know, when you look at like say the 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 home screen, you know, the 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 start screen on your you know updated Final Fantasy, the the uh, the with main the character art, right, and the main character shown on the the behind the black Final Fantasy logo. That's kind of the art that he mm-hmm. created, and really, you know, it's. It incorporates a lot of, you know, kind of like pastel-y slash watercolor-y designs. 
like a traditional Japanese art style, yeah, in kind of a modern vein, right? Yeah, and um, you know, as you mentioned, it doesn't really evoke the same vibe as you would get from looking at the video game graphics themselves. Mm-hmm. It kind of it kind of tells a little bit more of a standalone story by itself without actually getting into the game. You kind of see a little bit more maybe emotion and distress on some characters' faces that you otherwise wouldn't really see, especially within the 8-bit era, mm-hmm. 16-bit era Absolutely. of Nintendo and SNES games. And you really don't see how different his art style is from the final product until the games become more able to express art. Uh, you know, later in the PlayStation 2 era where the characters are yeah, starting to look yeah, significantly and that, different. And even at that point, that's when... Um, Tetsuya Nomura? Yeah, that's when Tetsuya Nomura kind of took over a lot of the art and character design that you see within the games. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's really... I it, I don't really... I haven't really looked into it too much at this point, but I'd be curious to see how much inspiration Nomura drew from Amano. Well, I know that the creatives team drew significantly from Amano because they he really gave the story life and then enabled them to be able to kind of draw from that when creating their artwork that actually went into the game. Right. Which clearly it has its limitations, but they did a lot with. Yeah, I would agree. And it's also interesting to kind of touch upon the fact that Sakaguchi completely wrote this guy off at the outset. I think that's hilarious, honestly. He's like, get me someone like this guy. That's points the, to the magazine. And that's the guy I'm talking about. Oh, well, get him in here. But it's, yeah, it's just so bizarre that, like, typically, as we kind of talked about before, Sakaguchi was not necessarily the greatest boss to work for. He had someone on his team kind of stand up after he was pressed with, like, oh, I don't like this guy. I don't know who that is. Like, but this is his art. He kind of he kind of stood his ground a little bit on, against a boss that you know might mm-hmm. you might not want to push, quote unquote, past his level of um, politeness. You, you really gotta credit Ishii a lot with that because he's the guy who who pushed for Amano as the Amano as the artist. Yeah, uh, he's the one who who saw the art and was able to find the magazine clippings and and kind of use that as a, a selling point and really sold Sakaguchi on Amano as the 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 concept artist for the for the Final Fantasy series. Well, and in, in a the, lucrative a lucrative process for both of them. And you know, at the you know, as we probably may have touched upon this a little bit, but at the time, a lot of NES game creators spent considerable amount of time with concept artists. You know, like you mm-hmm. look at um, games like Mario and Zelda. Yeah. They had several concept arts for, um, or concept, pieces of concept art for all their releases on the Super Nintendo and the NES. You look at uh, Super Mario Brothers 2 and 3. Yeah. They had ample, you know, very, very packed, loaded pieces of artwork that, you know, went out accompanying the games that didn't necessarily... The back in the day of the booklets. Right, yeah. They didn't necessarily evoke the same sentiment that you got when you're playing it was kind of more of like okay you're playing the game now let your imagination follow with this artwork so filling all the gaps remembering this is the day back when D D reigned right so D D, you had like you had to use your imagination like we'd paint a picture with our words and the imagination would take over it's kind of the same idea with the concept yeah. artist we'd we'd tell the con they would tell the concept artist the their words and he would paint the picture to kind of elicit that and that is the artwork that would go out because the the 16-bit era and the 8-bit era just wasn't able to 
paint that picture in the same way as Holy. So by giving us, the fans, the game players, that art to draw our imaginations, and it really helped. And, and I know as a kid, I would go look at those pictures, and then I would play the games. I'm like, this is what I'm seeing. Hmm. I'm seeing this using my imagination. Yeah, it basically gives you their idea, their mm-hmm. vision that you can take in your mind while you're playing the game, yeah. essentially. Yeah, so yeah, it's a very, very um, crucial yet overlooked aspect of classic Nintendo Entertainment System gaming. Umatsu and Amano were Amano were creative like geniuses that Square was able to to get early on. Well, I mean, not so early on for Umatsu. It, it's actually kind of crazy to me. He had sixteen previous titles already. But... I know. Yeah, I mean, and that's another you know aspect of this that's kind of overlooked. You're you're bringing in a pretty well-read, highly skilled musician that knows how to create complex music on the system, which. I don't think you can overlook. I don't. I don't know the sound direction that Dragon Quest had, but I doubt that they had Uematsu. Oh, they on definitely it. didn't have Uematsu <laughs> working on it. But in, it, it's just he had a vision when he came in to create the music. He had the skill and know how to do it, and he really just kind of knocked it out of the park. Mm-hmm. He changed the game, right? Yeah. So this is the usual point where we'll check in with the listeners every week. Uh, since we're still pretty early in the podcast, uh, I thought we'd go ahead and check out what, what people are asking on Reddit. Sure. And a Reddit person... Ask away. Ask us anything. And uh, we might even do one of those in the future, just FYI. Yeah, a Reddit question. So a Reddit, Lucifer0V, or 05, asked the question of the Reddit Final Fantasy group, what's your favorite Final Fantasy soundtrack? So let's let's discuss that a little bit, Josh. Thinking about it, what what would your fi- favorite Final Fantasy soundtrack be? To be quite honest, I mean I've I've beat this horse to let the dead, but Final Fantasy twelve. I really love the the music style, the soundtrack, especially the uh, remastered version of the game. Oh yeah, the I, re the remastered. Um, I love reorchestrated yes, version of the music. Yeah. I love Rabinaster's music. I think mm-hmm. it's it's so it just. It's so fitting for that location. I, I like we mentioned, you know, um, the soundtrack can really bring the game to life. Oh yeah! And I feel like the soundtrack within Final Fantasy XII does that, and then some. And um, you look at other aspects where you go out to like the Giza Plains, very um, triumphant sounding music as you enter the area. I really like that. It kind of for a game at that time that may not have as large of areas as we do now in Final Fantasy games, and it incorporated some gating as well. It really kind of tricks, maybe not trick is the right word, but it kind of puts the idea in the gamer's head that it's the idea is a little bit more expansive. It's like an illusion, right? right? That the game is larger than it really is. And, I mean, that's just another example of it, but even that, even Final Fantasy Tactics is another good one. I really enjoy um, Final Fantasy 15s as well. Oh yeah, that uh, some of that is really then, good. And then of course, I mean, since we're sitting here and we've had the opportunity and the to play Final Fantasy VII R remake or oh, oh remake. Oh my god, I love that the, soundtrack. The remade songs within that game are amazing. It like just the the amount of detail that they put into all the the jukebox songs that you can find within the game. Specifically, um, I really like the Canyon. Oh, Cosmo, Cosmo Canyon. Canyon. So I really love the Cosmo Canyon track in the song. I just love the the electric guitar and kind yeah. of like the soloing in it. It's very 
very cool to me. So I really like, even some of the new music they created for Final Fantasy VII R is really good. So like when you're with Aerith going through, um, district, uh, not district, um, sector six, you know, the ruin sector, the, the music there is new and it's so cool. I love it. It's just creates such a cool well, vision in the the fully orchestrated battle music oh, oh my gosh, my gosh so yes when i and, first heard that oh my gosh it was it was beautiful and within the, the team very, did a great job on yeah that. well and within you know right after the very you know intro part of the game when you leave the first reactor that you go to you go back to sector eight right yeah i you know i mentioned to you before the game came out that i was spoilers i was worried that they weren't even going to have the overworld music within this game and Sure enough, right when I get to Sector 8, it's the overworld music playing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they fully orchestrated this song. This mm -hmm. is so cool. Yeah, it was They didn't cool. make us wait for it. I was just so happy that that happened. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, so for me, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, Final Fan I really like the PlayStation Final Fantasies. Uh, 7, 8, and 9 all have great music. I, I find myself humming the, the main theme from Final Fantasy IX quite a bit. Eight, when you hear it reorchestrated with with full orchestra or piano, it's got just some some amazing music. Um, and then, of course, seven will always have a place in my heart. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'd have to go up there with maybe 7R, because it is that reimagining of right. seven's music. And it's, it when I heard that, it not only was great and fantastic as a new composition, but it it also still made me feel like I was, what, eight years old again? Made you feel young again. I, I truly... the world was new. I truly felt young <laughs> again. It was great. It was amazing. So I, I think I would have to say um, 7R would be my favorite, but any of those original uh, three games, original three PlayStation games, are great. Yeah. And, and that's that's a very difficult decision because literally all these games are great, great or well, super well-composed yeah, I mean, games. Especially for their, for their time. Yeah. They come out with... The potentially some of the greatest graphics of any games coming out within their time frame, mm -hmm. and then the soundtracks that come out are fantastic. The stories that are issued along with them is fantastic. But just if you haven't played Final Fantasy games, then you're really not doing yourself justice as a gamer, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just kind of looking to see uh, what people on Reddit are saying. Um, we've got a lot of votes for Shadow Shadowbringers, uh, how amazing that track is. Hmm. Um, you know, that's great. Uh, literally everything from Final Fantasy VIII says one of, one of uh, says the greater martyr from Reddit. Um, was that, sorry, go back up. Was that 13 or 10? Okay, that's 13 too. Uh, and then, you know, we've got a few votes here for for Final Fantasy V and Final Fantasy IX, Not Alone from Nine and Home Sweet Home for Five. So a lot of people picking out like there's a 12 even, main theme. Yeah, even specific tracks, which I don't blame people for. Um, the main theme from Five says Mitch Fay. Uh, pretty awesome. Um, some votes for Eleven, which Eleven had good music. I didn't. I don't remember those tracks real well because I played Eleven once, you know, not right. once, but one period of time, and right. it was great. Well, yeah, it's one kind of like how you essentially treat MMOs, I think, and like, if you're going to play it forever, you do, but if you don't, you would kind of just leave it in the past. <laughs> uh, and then, oh, yeah, we've got some votes for the, the battle of on the big bridge 
but but specifically the Final Fantasy twelve version. Um, pretty, okay. pretty spectacular. Uh, Kefka, that's a good one to throw back in yeah, from Final Fantasy for six. Sure. Um, the battle one from Final Fantasy uh, four, which battle uh, Final Fantasy four is fantastic. I'm surprised I haven't seen um, One Winged Angel on any of these. I, I am too. <laughs> uh, Final Fantasy seven's main theme. Actually, we'll we'll one. get to that when we talk about Final Fantasy seven. But One Winged mm-hmm. Angel was a very interesting song in and of itself for that game because it really was different than any other song created for that game. Yeah, yeah. Alrighty then, so let's shift gears now. So why don't we talk about what we can expect next week, Josh? Yeah, so we've definitely covered our past history with Square and Final Fantasy. I think probably within the next week, we're going to touch upon all the different releases of Final Fantasy differing elements within them we'll also give our take on opinions of which versions might be the best and then we'll also start to give a little bit more information about our mosey through final fantasy specifically we're going to build our teams out and we'll give reasoning as to why we chose the certain members of our parties we'll kind of just set the stage from there to start the journey all right that sounds like a good plan i know i'm looking forward to it Uh, i've got a I've got a team in mind, and uh, I think I know where I'm going to be playing the game. And we can talk a little bit more about that here uh, next week as well. So it's been great talking with all of y'all, and uh, we hope to hear from the listeners here again soon. Yeah, thanks, and uh, hopefully we can continue to make more episodes for you that you like. Oh, maybe we should throw in there, too. Um, Josh, why don't you tell the listeners where we can be found? Oh, right. Um, Our our social media spots. Yeah, so you can find us on Twitter at Let's underscore Mosey. So feel free to tweet, retweet, post things, uh, comment on things that we post. I'm going to be posting art periodically related to the Mosey that we do. I've got the capability to get that done now. So hopefully that shouldn't be too much of an issue. Um, Time permitting. And we also have our podcast email. Uh, it's letsmoseyofficial at gmail.com. So feel free to send us messages, um, any ideas for future shows, pocket episodes, top tens, things like that. Questions. Any, yeah. Any questions, Q&As, um, feel free to interact with us there. We'll be more than happy to interact with you and give you shout outs on the show. And then you can find this podcast pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. Uh, we are hosted on Anchor. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere that you find your your podcast listening. You know, give us give us a give us a thumbs up or a a like. Give us a five star review if you like us as well on Pod, Apple Podcasts. We appreciate that. I think we'll probably look into. I'm not sure if we're on like a Stitcher or anything like that, but we might yeah, look sure. into getting us on there too, just because I know it's a fairly popular podcatcher. Um, so why not? You know, cast our net out. See who else uh, we can get to listen on there other than that um, anything else that we need to add i think that's good take care listeners and we'll talk to you next week see you guys